The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. When they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees, and he splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water gushed out, It ran in the dry places like a river. 
for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles and they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise the Lord. All right, we are in Deuteronomy 30. This is verses 11 through 20. It is entitled, For He is Your Life. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us? that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your hearts turn away, so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. The passage set before us today will complete chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. But to understand it, completely takes knowing what is written later in Israel's history and even knowing what is said in the New Testament concerning both Israel and the work of Jesus. The Bible starts with something and builds upon it. Nothing is lost in the process and nothing is discarded. Everything has a place and together everything forms one united purpose. Yes, it is hard at times to see how some things written in Scripture have any relevance to anything else at all. Have you ever read the Bible and said to yourself, I wonder what this is doing here? It's hard sometimes, but it all does tie together. In our passage today, Moses says that the words of law he is presenting to the people equate to life and good or death and evil. He also ties the performance of the words to a love of the Lord and that the Lord is the life of of Israel and Israel's length of days. The two thoughts, that of performance of the law and that of the very being of the Lord himself, are thus inextricably tied together. The performance equates to life, and the Lord is Israel's life. For Israel, the two cannot be separated. Paul takes the words of Deuteronomy 30, and he then explains what the intent is behind the words in Romans 10. That's our text verse for today. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, 
in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, then believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Moses speaks of the righteousness of the law. Paul speaks of the righteousness of faith. And yet, both cite the same basic words, although Paul does amend them somewhat. The question for us then is, where do the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of faith meet? Obviously, Paul tells us that the answer is in the person of Jesus. How is this so? Does this mean that we are not bound to the law of Moses? Well, let's hope so, because if we were, we would have a whole lot of work to do, and we would fail. The theology behind the message is complicated, but the message itself is rather simple. Paul's summing it up for us is a really nice touch. Believe and be saved. It is one of those wonderful truths that frees the weary soul from its heavy burden. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Yes, great things such as righteousness of faith are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is the word is very near you. It's verses 11 through 20, all of our verses today. The chapter so far has dealt with adherence to the law, punishment, including exile for not doing so, restoration when the law is recalled to mind, and so on. It takes the fact that these things will actually occur as an axiom. The final verses of the previous passage show that this is so. Here's what it said last week. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, as he rejoiced over your fathers, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. As such, Israel will only have themselves to blame for any ills that come upon them. And that true restoration will only be realized when they again turn to the Lord through the words of Moses. This is absolutely certain, and it is absolutely pre-confirmed by his words. As this is so, Moses will show that the ideal he sets forth is perfectly attainable. Thus, the coming words will reconfirm that Israel's ills are solely a self-inflicted wound. That his words are clear and understandable is now stated. And yet, what he states bears in it a hint of the Messiah. First, the law has already set forth such hints, both implicitly and explicitly. Secondly, the human heart, if it is honest, clearly shows this. For who can meet the demands of the law? even if it is clear and understandable. With that in mind, Moses says, verse 11, for this commandment which I command you today. As has been the case repeatedly, the words speak of the entire body of law given forth by Moses. Whether spoken out in one day or in 20, the word today signifies the whole period of instruction. This is more clearly understood because of his use of the word ha mitzvah or the commandment. 
all of the statutes, ordinances, judgments, and commandments combine into one body, the commandment. Of this commandment, which Moses commands Israel, it is singular, you, Israel. He says, verse 11 continues, it is not too mysterious for you. Lo neflet hi mimecha, no wonderful for you. The word is the verb pala. It is derived from the noun pele, not the soccer player, (laughs) meaning a wonder. And admittedly, pele is somewhat of a wonder. Thus, the word signifies to be surpassing or extraordinary. As such, the context will determine the exact idea being conveyed. Too hard, too difficult, beyond comprehension, mysterious, and so on. Depends on the context how you translate it. The obvious meaning Moses is conveying is that the people will not look at the law once it is fully compiled and say, this is too hard for us to either understand or to follow. As noted... It is truly the case that no one can do all the things of this law. And anyone who lives under it, even for a single day, would easily be able to see this. But the law also has provisions for those who fail to do, if they are willing to admit they have failed. The sacrificial system provided for the failures. But the sacrificial system is what? It is doing. So it doesn't matter whether you're doing the law or you're failing and doing something to take care of your failures, you're still doing, okay? The heart would be weighed by the Lord and the heart that was circumcised, verse 30, verse 6, would live. Albert Barnes rightly says this saying, the seeming ease of the commandment and yet it's real impossibility to the natural man form part of the qualifications of the law to be our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The law is open, clearly stated, not impossible to do in the sense that nothing in it cannot be done at any given time, and it tells in advance of the blessings for performance and the curses for failing to pay heed. Again, there is a difference in the idea of possibility, impossibility to do the things of the law. To more fully understand this, and as an example, Moses never says something like, okay, everybody, on the 27th day of each month, every person in Israel must run the entire circuit of the borders of the land finishing before sundown. That would be impossible, and thus it would be unfair. Likewise, if Moses said no person of Israel is ever to drink any liquids, it would be impossible. Rather, everything in the law is possible in the sense that anyone and everyone can do each and everything within the law. The impossibility is that of perfect performance at all times. But that is not what Moses is referring to, obviously, because the sacrificial system presupposes failure. It is given for exactly that purpose. Thus, Even that makes the law attainable in a sense, but only because the heart is willing to admit the fault that necessitated the sacrifice. Understanding this, Moses next says, verse 11 continues, nor is it far off. Velo rechoka hi, and no far off it. The idea here is that which is unattainable because of distance. The law is given to Israel. It is right there among them, regardless as to where it came from. This is evidenced, for example, in 2 Chronicles. Here's what it says in 2 Chronicles 34. 
Now when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying, All that was committed to your servants, they are doing. And they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law, that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Achikam, the son of Shaphan, Avdan, the son of Mekah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Asaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. There it was. The law of Moses was right there among the people, and yet they failed to adhere to it. This was so much the case that it was forgotten to even exist. But it did. The guilt was Israel's. As for the words, they anticipate the coming of Christ, knowing that he is the embodiment of what the law states, pictures, and anticipates. The imagery is perfectly clear. The gospel was brought by Jesus to Israel. It wasn't a long distance away. Rather, he was born right among them, right there in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He proclaimed the good news throughout all of the land, and the new covenant in his blood was given in Jerusalem. As far as the nearness of the law, it is next more fully expressed by Moses. Verse 12, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. The Hebrew reads, not in the heavens and ascend into the heavens. It is plural. The great expanse above their heads was what is being expressed to the people now. One can think of the giving of the law that Moses reminded them of back in chapter 4. Here's what it said in Deuteronomy 4. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven. It actually says heavens there as well. With darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you the covenant which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. In the same chapter, he again said this, out of heaven, actually the heavens, he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you on earth. He showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And again in Deuteronomy 4.39, Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. In each of these verses in chapter 4, it says the heavens rather than simply heaven. Moses is reminding them of where the law came from, but also to whom it was given. The word is not in an unattainable location as if it was hidden from them. 
It was not still with God alone in requiring a mediator to go and obtain it. Though its source may be in heaven, the law is found among them. There's no need to ascend to attain what has been delivered and mediated from above. It is these words now and those in the next verses that Paul used in our text verse to clearly and precisely show that the law was intended to reveal Christ, remembering that Christ is the embodiment of the law, and it both pictures and anticipates him. The words clearly reflect what happened at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He was in heaven, but nobody had to ascend there to retrieve him. Rather, he came from the heavens just as the voice of the law came. Here's what it says in John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The patterns are given and they are unmistakable. Seeing this, Moses continues with verse 13, nor is it beyond the sea. As great as the heavens above, so was the sea also perceived to be by Israel. They could look up and see only an unending sky. And should they look out at the water, they would see no end to it as well. At this point, Moses is anticipating life in Canaan, where the great sea to the west was located. Israel was not a seagoing people, and so the journey out for them to an unknown location to find the law would be no different than trying to ascend to the heavens themselves to find it. It is because of such an impassable void, verse 13 continues, that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Israel did not need to find a ship and sailors to go out and find the law. There was no great journey from one country to the next or from one continent to another. Rather, the law came to them. It was maintained among them, and the prophets arose from among them. Everything was available directly to Israel. Likewise, the message of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was not from some other nation. Rather, as Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. When citing these words, Paul makes a change in them, confounding many scholars. He says, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Moses' words speak of distance, not depth. Even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the words of Paul are not supported. Be that as it may, Paul is making a point about the coming of Christ, just as Moses is making a point about the availability of the law. The law came to Israel from God. They had it presented to them and they willingly rejected it and him. Likewise, John says, John 1, 11 through 13, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Israel did not need to pass over the sea to find the law. It was there with them. And Israel did not need to look elsewhere to find their Messiah. He came to them. These verses speak of ascending to the heavens and of going beyond the sea. But there is also a contrasting allusion to the workings of God in Christ. The heavens are where things are concealed until they are revealed by God. The other side of the sea is where there is no 
law. Israel has the law. There's a law only given to Israel. Therefore, on the other side of the sea, there is no law. Everybody see that. As the law is intended to bring life, which is Leviticus 18.5, then the other side is where there is death. The contrast then, the hiding and revealing and the life from the death is seen in the work of Christ, Ephesians 3. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. And then from Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Israel did not need to ascend or cross over to have the law. It came from God. Likewise, Christ was hidden in God, but came to Israel. And the life found in Christ came through his death in fulfillment of the law. That was intended to bring life, by the way. It did, in fact, do so. What Israel needed for each step of the process was provided by God. As Moses says, verse 14, but the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Moses is not speaking of salvation. Israel is the redeemed of the Lord. He is speaking of performance. The word was not concealed from Israel, and it was not unattainable by Israel. Everything has been in the singular here. You, Israel. The law was in the mouth of Israel, as will be shown to be true when the blessings and the curses are proclaimed on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim as directed in chapter 27. That's going to come in the book of Joshua. And they are in the heart of Israel, meaning right there in the sanctuary. Remember, they lost the law, but it was there right in the sanctuary. God always maintained that law for them so that it was always available to them. And that remains to this day. They have the law. It is there with them. When they failed in performance, they were to then perform, meaning through sacrifice for atonement. Everything comes back to performance for Israel. Before I go on, what does that mean for you and me? Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, and the sacrificial system is a part of the law. And every single part of the sacrificial system that took us years to go through in the book of Leviticus pointed to the work of Jesus Christ. Our performance is in Christ. And that is it. People that cannot get that, I do not understand. We've got these Hebrew Roots Movement people. We've got people praying to Mary and all of these crazy things, thinking they need to do this to get to God. We've got Seventh-day Adventists that are spending Saturday in church trying to obtain God's favor by doing that. Every single thing that we do in our Christian life is performed by Christ for us. And then we just simply believe everything. He has done it all. Let's not add to the work of Christ until after we're saved. And then we can start doing wonderful things for Christ. We can perform all day long if we want to. And if we don't want to, you're going to walk up and you're going to get a thimble. And he's going to say, here you go. Here's your rewards. Okay. I'd rather be like Billy Graham if possible and walk up with a keg the size of Montana and say, start filling, Lord. But that might not happen. It's up to him. He will decide that. But we can at least do our best to perform. But let Christ do his work in your life first. Okay? 
the law clearly and unambiguously anticipates Jesus Christ. Thus, the idea of performance is in Christ. That is why Paul can then bring forth his words concerning what Moses now speaks of and directly equate them to salvation. Works on Jesus' part, salvation on our part. Again, from our text verse, here's what it said. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everything was about Jesus. Performance on his part, not us. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Someone must perform. Israel did not. And so Christ stepped in to do so. In performance, there is life. Verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Moses is way more precise in his words. Each noun is prefixed by an article. The life and the good and the death and the evil. Therefore, it isn't just an abstract concept that Moses speaks of, but things that are concrete, fixed, and firm. As such, these must be based on performance. The law can bring either, and it is totally up to Israel to decide which path they will follow. Immediately, this then speaks of the law, but ultimately it must speak of Christ. Israel twice was exiled, the curse meaning the death and the evil, and they are still not following Moses. But more than that, Christ came and fulfilled Moses. Therefore, Israel must now choose Christ to have the life and the good. It is no longer an issue of law. This will become perfectly evident in the verses ahead. For now, verse 16, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God. As has been the case, the words continue in the singular. You, Israel. Loving the Lord is the first of the stated commands. Thus, this is a volitional love. It is an act of the will intended to set the rest of Israel's will in alignment with what is expected. Israel as a nation is to demonstrate love to the Lord. If someone does wrong by committing murder, he is to be punished according to the law. This is obedience, and thus it is a demonstration of love. Israel was not to make up new laws that were not in accord with the Mosaic law. That would demonstrate a disdain for the Lord. Rather, everything Israel does was to be in accord with that set forth by Moses which is, verse 16 continues, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments. To love the Lord is to do these things. The Lord is merciful. Israel is to show mercy. The Lord is holy. Israel is to be holy, and so on. This is to walk in his ways. Further, obedience demonstrates loving the Lord. This is seen in the keeping of his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments. The life of Israel was to be a demonstration of loving the Lord in these ways. The command to love the Lord is the command to do as Moses now instructs. It is this total national commitment in which Moses says, verse 16 going on, that you may live and multiply. You, Israel, 
The life of Israel is completely tied up in performance. There's no way around this. The law is near to them. It is available to them. It is understandable and it is doable. The conditions are given. To fail is to receive the death and the evil. To perform is to receive the life and the good. Moses is clear. Performance leads to the promise. Verse 16 continues, And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. The word should recall to mind the first verses of chapter 28. The blessings would come upon Israel and they would be blessed. Life would be found and Israel would be secure. Verse 17, but, but, oh, what a sad word. If your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. This is a national turning of the heart. In other words, someone up and Dan might serve other gods. When he's found out, Israel takes him out and stones him to death. Then Israel has done what is good and what is right. However, if the person was a millionaire and the people said to themselves, hey, this guy has made him prosper, we need to worship it too, that would be the beginning of turning away. If the other tribes saw it and came against them to punish them, then Israel would have done what is good. But if they too saw the prosperity that supposedly came from worshiping this false god and started to do so too, it would be that the national heart of Israel had turned, as Moses now states. If this is the case, verse 18, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. Moses now carefully selects his words to ensure that the will of the Lord for Israel is clearly and unambiguously stated. He does this by going from the second person singular to the second person plural. Higati lachem hayom ki abod tobedun. I declare to you all this day for perishing, you all shall all surely perish. Moses does not say that Israel will perish. If he said, you, Israel, will perish, it would violate something he said earlier in Leviticus 26, wouldn't it? So Moses is extremely careful in how he is choosing his words. The people of Israel will perish, but Israel will not perish. This is explained in the words of Leviticus 26, verse 38, saying, you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. This does not mean, however, all of the people will utterly perish. That is explicitly stated later in Leviticus 26. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. If he had said, continued in the singular, as he has all the way through this passage, in that verse right there, there would be a contradiction in the Bible. And he didn't do it because he is keeping the word of the Lord and telling them, you will perish, but you as a nation will never perish. It's marvelous what Moses is doing in these words before us. The care taken by Moses to make his pronouncements assures us that the covenant promises of the Lord will never be broken. And that ought to make your heart rejoice when you understand the doctrine of eternal salvation. Verse 18 continues, you shall not prolong in your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. The words are precise. No, you all 
shall certainly prolong days upon the ground which you singular cross over the Jordan to go there to inherit. How careful Moses is to not present a thought that could even possibly be considered by someone to violate that which has already been stated by the Lord. Israel is made up of people, and the people of Israel will suffer the consequences of their failings. Having said this, Israel faithfully acknowledged that they were exiled for their unfaithfulness after their first exile. What happened to them was justly deserved. That is recorded several times in Scripture. But Israel has not acknowledged in the slightest their failings for the second exile. A rare voice may have arisen over the millennia, but no voice of Israel, meaning the nation, has so come forth. Further, they have not even bothered to find out why these things have come about. They have hidden the truth so deeply that it will take the hand of God himself to awaken them from their slumber. But the fact is, to this day, Israel remains because God has spoken and God will perform. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. It says, the heavens and the earth, they are to hear and witness. This can be taken in one of two ways. It could be figuratively speaking of those in heaven and those on earth being witnesses. However, it is more likely literal. The heavens and the earth will testify to the peoples. It is plural. You all, the people's obedience. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 28. And your heavens, which are over your head, shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. It is a literal fulfillment, a literal witnessing of Israel's disobedience. Verse 19 continues, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Now it changes to the singular, you, Israel. The changes from the singular to the plural and back again are precise, and they tell their own story to the people. As before, it is the life and the death and the blessing and the curse. These are not abstract concepts, but they are those things explicitly stated by Moses that would come upon Israel. The choice is a national choice. As a nation, it is directed by its leaders. The fate of the people rests in their hands. Verse 19 continues, Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Therefore, choose the life. It is an admonition and it is a warning. And the choice is up to the nation because it says to and purpose you, singular, and your singular seed may live. Being on this side of the cross and understanding the significance of what is presented by Moses as it anticipates the coming of Christ, the words of Jesus simply cannot be missed. John 14, 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Without Christ, Israel finds by default the death, the curse, and the evil. Until they come to the one who Moses speaks of and anticipates, they will continue to only find disaster. The current prosperity and abundance in Israel will perish along with all that of the other nations in the days ahead. But someday they will choose the life. Verse 20, 
that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. Every pronoun referring to Israel in this final verse is singular, you, Israel. It speaks of the national state of the people. Further, the words of this clause are set not in a conditional way, but in an explanatory manner, to love, to obey, and to cling. In essence, this is how you may live, to love him, to obey him, and to cling to him. That is then explained by the words, verse 20 continues, for he is your life. Nothing could point more directly to the coming of Christ than these words. They sum up everything else stated by Moses. How can the Lord be Israel's life if the people of Israel just keep dying? What kind of an existence is it for a nation to endure, but not its people? The two must come together and meet at some point. Jesus told them as much. John 5, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him, you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. It is Jesus who gives life to Israel. Plain and simple. You don't have to go any farther with it than that. Jesus. As such, verse 20 continues, and the length of your days. The continuance of Israel is tied up in the life of Israel. Israel will continue when Israel has life. Though these words are to Israel in the singular, speaking to them nationally, a nation is made up of individuals. Hence, the words are parallel to what Jesus said to Martha in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? For those who believe, they will have life and length of days. For those of Israel who believe, it will mean that Israel has life and length of days. Verse 20 finishes with, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. For Israel, Canaan is the land of promise. To dwell there is the anticipation and the expectation. But it will only occur when the law meets in obedience. The implication then, as stated before, is that Israel was not obedient to the law. But nothing is recorded in Scripture meaning in the Old Testament, to explain their second exile. This means that either Israel was left without explanation in their own writings as to why they were exiled, or it means that sacred scripture does record the reason, but they have failed to accept that body of scripture as divinely inspired. In other words, the Old Testament is an incomplete account of Israel's history. Only with the New Testament do Moses' words now have any meaning at all for the modern nation. Indeed, the Old Testament tells of Israel's restoration, but it does not tell them why they needed to be restored. Only with their rejection of Christ do the past 2,000 years of their history make any sense at all. As this is so, and as Canaan is only a type of what God promises in the restoration of all things, the final words of the passage today clearly anticipate the true promise.
Here's what it says in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That heavenly city, of which Canaan is only a type and a shadow, is only accessible through the one who made entry possible. Only in Christ, only in Jesus Christ, the true Israel, can Israel, the nation, find its national promise. There is no need to build a tower to heaven to bring down the commandment for us to do. And it wouldn't work anyway. In us, there's way too much leaven. The command would only condemn me and you. And there is no need to cross the sea to bring the commandment back home to us. And even if we did, what a tragedy that would be. What we need is the perfection of Jesus. And yet, the commandment is near to us in its own way. It is very near in our mouth and in our heart. When it is fulfilled by another, we can boldly say, I receive Jesus. And right then does our life truly start. Our second thought today, an explanation of Paul's change to Moses' words. We saw in verse 13 that Moses said, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. However, when Paul cites this same verse in Romans 10, verse 7, he says, or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Why did Paul do that? And how can that be a faithful explanation of what Moses is saying? It is questions like this that need to be addressed in order to understand what is going on, both in the mind of the author and in the context of what Christ has done. Otherwise, it would seem that what is presented is not a faithful representation of what Moses was saying. And so, to understand why Paul made the change, we will evaluate this one verse. First, the word Paul begins with, or, is tying his question to his previous words. He said, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Who will ascend into heaven? That corresponds closely with Deuteronomy 30, verse 12. However, Deuteronomy 30, verse 13, and Romans 10, 7, do not follow suit. Here they are side by side. Nor is it beyond the sea, or who will descend into the abyss. Completely different. Paul wasn't changing scripture by changing the thought from going over the sea to descending into the abyss. The intent is the same, but the point of reference is different. The Hebrew people were in the dry wilderness, and they also did not have the knowledge of the risen Lord. Moses was using an example that they could clearly understand in order to speak the language of faith. On the other hand, Paul is using the resurrection in the same way. The sea to the Hebrews was this great impassable body. And as we noted, the death of man is spoken of in this exact same manner. As a connecting point between the two, the Greek word abyssom is used for abyss by Paul. 
The same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where the word for deep, abyssal, is used when speaking about the great sea creature, Leviathan, in Job, where it says, he makes the deep, the abyssal, boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. The sea was perceived as the great deep in this way, even at Moses' time. At the giving of the law, the third commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. There, the water under the earth refers to the sea. Passing over the sea, then, is comparable to descending into the abyss for all intents and purposes. And so Paul grasps this Old Testament similarity and uses the imagery to connect it with the work of Christ in the new when speaking of the seemingly impassable void of death. Searching for the commandment by a descent into the abyss is then explained to bring Christ up from the dead. We don't need to conduct such a search to find the knowledge of what God provides. Rather, it is obtainable right there in the work of Christ. He has descended into the abyss. To search for our faith righteousness there, after his prevailing over it, would then be a denial of what has been fulfilled in him. I have to go looking for righteousness down in the the pit? No, he's already come up from the pit. I don't need to worry about that. That's the point of what he's making. He, Jesus, has triumphed over it for us. As a resounding note of victory in this matter, Paul states this in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, which is down there, right? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses had spoken of performance of the law in order to have life. The record of the Old Testament, both in Israel as a nation and in Israel the people, shows that life cannot be obtained through performance of the law. And yet, the law clearly says that if a man does the things of the law, he shall live by them. Once again, Leviticus 18.5. Paul cites that same verse in Romans 10.5 in our text verse, calling it the righteousness which is of the law. Only then does he speak of the righteousness of faith. One must decide where he is going to hang his hat. Will it be on his own effort under the law or in Christ's performance of the law? Moses, almost 1,500 years before the coming of Christ, anticipated and spoke of Christ. He is the source of righteousness, and it is in finding him that one finds life. As big and as confusing as the Bible is, and as seemingly irrelevant are the words of Moses, they might seem that way. They convey to us a portion of the most important truth of all, the knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In him is our life, and in him is our length of days, even eternity in the presence of God. This is the glory of what God has done in Christ. And it was all prefigured back at the time of Moses. Moses is sitting there telling these people these things. They're like, yeah, okay, we'll go out and do the law. We're going to have life, right? I mean, it's that simple. And they get over the Jordan and what happens? 
They keep failing and they fail and they fail. And the record is given for a reason. Those stories aren't arbitrary at all. None of them, not one single story is arbitrary. They are all given to show us that Israel couldn't do it. It doesn't matter how strong the guy was. It doesn't matter how great of a leader he was, how tall he was. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter how many of them there were. It doesn't matter if they were sided up against each other. It didn't make any difference what possible permutation or scenario you could think of. They failed. They failed because the law of Moses is a failure apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is given to show us that. It is a tutor to lead us to Christ. The law itself is not a failure. I'm not saying that God did something that was wrong. Paul makes that very clear and he explains it in the book of Romans. It is a failure because of us, because of the sin nature in us. That is why it is a failure, because of us, not because of God's perfect law. It's because of our inability to meet that perfect law. Okay, if somebody cuts out that little piece of what I just said and makes a video out of it, it's going to make it sound like I'm a heretic. I'm not. I had to explain it. And that's why I always worry about saying things like that. You have to hear the bad before you get to the good. And the good is Jesus. He has performed that law. All of that failure for all of those years because all of those people had sin. And along comes one that doesn't have any sin. And he says, I will do it because I love these people, this world enough to do it. And he did it. And then he gave up that life. All of those sacrifices, every single one of them pointing to him. The lack of performance here means performance there. They're just anticipating Christ coming and doing it for them. He gave up his life on Calvary. He died for their sins and he died for the sins, not only of Israel, but for the whole world. God says, it's too small of a thing that I'm just going to send you to the redeemed of Israel. I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles. To the ends of the earth, my salvation shall be seen because my son is coming. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. Understand that whatever you're doing to try to merit God's favor, if you're doing it because you think you have to do it, you better get another congregation. You better get another church or another denomination. You need to cling to Jesus. And you can't do it unless you know this word. This is what's important. I am so proud of the people that say, I'm going home and I'm reading this word every day. I'm doing it in the morning. I'm doing it. I'm thinking on it during the day because you can't know. You can't know. And you can be so easily led astray by people that have an agenda. It is so simple. Cling to this word. Wherever you go in the world, that's what's important until Christ comes. Because this word tells of him. I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to elevate the word. I'm telling you that this, knowing this is what's important so that you can know him. Okay, once again, I'm always afraid of saying something, somebody taking a little piece of a video and saying, yeah, like heretic. (sighs) It does bother me, believe me. Um, We got a closing verse from Romans 10. Here it is. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Please call on Jesus today. Okay, next week is Deuteronomy 31 verses 1 through 8. 
it will not be a call to do the shooby dooby doo This is entitled, Then Moses Called Joshua. That'll be our 89th Deuteronomy sermon. I could think of nothing else to rhyme with Joshua. So there you go. Shooby dooby doo <laughs> The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Okay. Now, before we uh, get into the poem, I want to first say it's so good to have the doctor and Mabel back. And, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm concerned because Russell and Carl that had been here for the past few weeks came last week and they didn't know that I was a little bit sick. And they said they wanted to stay, so they did, and they're not here, and they didn't show up at mission work either. So I hope that you guys will pray for Russell and Carl, because they may have gotten something this past week, and I would feel terrible if they did. Anyway, here we go. Got a question for you. Who bought Joseph as a slave? Okay, I got a pata and then a no and then a yeah and then a yeah. So I got kind of two and a half back there and one right here. Potiphar, that's correct. Okay, I tried to make it easy today. I did. Finally. Yeah. That's why I was like, no. Can't be. Can't be that simple. Listen, last week, oh no, that was the uh, prophecy update. The who said it. Last week was so simple. I was so sick, I couldn't even. So I, uh, my question was, if you didn't hear it, um, who said it? Hi-ho, silver, away. Was it last week? I think it was. Anyway. Yeah, Clayton Moore. Yeah, Clayton Moore. There you go. Okay, here we go. He is your life. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off, you must admit. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us? Who will so commit and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, this holy writ, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, but the life and good always pays, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, so to you I address. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away, so that you do not hear, not giving a haw or a hem, and are drawn away, and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan, to go in and possess, this you must understand. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, either of these I give. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice in all ways, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days." And that you may dwell in the land which the Lord to your fathers swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them abundant blessings and more. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. 
Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to hear the words of Moses and to understand the glory of what he is actually talking about. Even though it seems like words of law and of performance, it is only so because of the coming of Christ. Your law, his performance, our blessing. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is willing to do such things as that for people like us. How wonderful it is to know that there is some hope for us in this world. Looking at ourselves, it's a hard thing to imagine, but you see the value. You determined that it was worth the cost, and you performed. Thank you, Lord God, for this wonderful thing that you have done in Christ our Lord. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.